Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF, or F-O-F, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. Hello, I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Political Roundtable. You can find out more about Week to Week, including how to attend a program when you're in the Bay Area, and about all of our 450 programs a year by going to CommonwealthClub.org. Now, let's join today's program. Welcome to Week to Week, the political roundtable from the Commonwealth Club of California from Monday, July 10th, 2017. Now, last week, of course, the nation celebrated the 4th of July. There was fireworks, picnics, uh, bands, uh, burnt grilled food. Um, and National Public Radio tweeted out the Declaration of Independence line by line throughout the day. Um, now, some on the far right apparently got a little misinterpreting in their, their aspect. They thought it was a call for treason. Now, yes, who knew that our nation's founding document would require a trigger warning for the alt-right? I suppose trigger warning means something different to them, but so let's just move on. I'm John Zipper, I'm your host for Week to Week, and I'm the Commonwealth Club's Vice President of Media and Editorial. Very glad to be here with you, all, everyone in the audience, and this great panel. Um, on today's program, we're going to discuss the latest in the ever-evolving Russia-Trump saga, um, as well as the President's performance at the G20 Summit, Jerry Brown's role as a global green warrior, the fate of the GOP healthcare bill, more states that are taking on the federal government on various issues, and of course other political news. As always, I like to note that the Commonwealth Club has people of a wide range of views, so any opinions that are expressed up here are those solely of the speakers and not of the Commonwealth Club. Now let's meet our panelists for today. I'm going to start on the far end with Carla Marinucci. She's a senior writer for Politico California Playbook, of course, at politico.com. She's on Twitter at C. Marinucci. Next to her, Next to her is Bob Butler, a reporter for KCBS Radio, and he's on Twitter at BobButler7. So welcome. And next to me is Dr. James Taylor, a director of African American Studies and a professor of political science at the University of San Francisco. He's also a lecturer at the University of California, Berkeley. So good hand. Welcome all. I think you all know how this is done. There are question cards throughout the room. Fill them out, and uh, we'll collect them, bring them up here, and I will try to ask as many as we can during the hour. Um, so on to our roundtable. And once again, we begin our program with the <coughs> Trump-Russia story. <laughs> I think we'll continue doing this until we you know, end up... Get a resolution. Uh, yes, until the impeachment <laughs> series takes over. Um, um, now, actually, there's been a number of things happen recently. Last week, of course, President Trump was in uh, Hamburg, Germany for the G20 summit. He met Vladimir Putin the Russian president for the first time during his presidency. Um, and this weekend, the New York Times reported that of a meeting between the president's son, son-in-law, and a former campaign manager at Trump Tower with a Russian lawyer who's close to the Kremlin. 
It's a lot of stuff in that one sentence. So, Carla, let's start with this whole Trump family <laughs> Russia thing. What's the latest? What do we know? You know, John, I don't know. If somebody called you up and said, uh, you know, I want to meet with the top people at the Commonwealth Club, but I don't know who, what the name is, and I'm not exactly sure what they want to talk about, but arrange a meeting for me, uh, you know, in the, in the executive offices. Sure. Uh, does that, would that fly? And that is the issue uh, with Donald Trump Jr. I, I talked to a, a veteran campaign consultant, Gary South, today on this issue. And I said, Gary, is this ever done in campaigns? And we know that you know, people try, try to drop you know, negative information on other campaigns. And he said, first of all, uh, he said it happened to him in the recall campaign. Uh, in 2003, a, a report, somebody called him up and said, I'm an ex-reporter from the National Enquirer. I, have I got dirt on Arnold Schwarzenegger? They, it's so good that they won't even print it in the Enquirer. Uh, I, I want to meet with you. And it, Gary said right away, I said, oh, no, I smelled the rat right away. There's no way I'm going to meet with somebody. I don't know who's going to use this against me. Eventually, it's going to get out. It's going to hurt my candidate. Uh, he absolutely could not believe that Donald Trump Jr. And he, and he mentioned the fact that, by the way, in the Bush-Gore campaign, uh, if you may remember, the Gore people got a package uh, in brown paper, uh, a briefing book that belonged to the, the Bush people. What did they do with it? They called the FBI. Uh, exactly. I mean, uh, the idea that a foreign operative would call you up uh, and want to meet in Trump Tower just down the hall from your guy. And you'd get together all the top people, Paul Manafort and Jared Kushner, but you didn't know who the person was. I mean, it's just everything about it. Yeah. Uh, a lot of these top operators are telling me, just doesn't pass the smell test, eh? <laughs> B. And uh, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders today was asked in the press briefing, uh, aren't you a little concerned? This is the third time Jared Kushner has failed to indi uh, indicate his meeting with a Russian official. And her answer was, well, you know, he just didn't fill out the forms all the way. He's a very so good man. I uh, you know, I guess that's the answer. Well, you know, what gets me about this whole meeting is that, okay, you have somebody, some sketchy attorney calls you up um, and says they want to meet with you, and you don't know who they are, but they say they have information detrimental to Hillary Clinton. So, oh, yes, I'm going to have that meeting. But there's no collusion. I mean, what, what, we talked about this earlier. There's so much smoke coming from, from the Trump campaign and the campaign um, associates that it's really hard to believe that there is no fire. But we won't know whether there's fire or not until Mueller gets through with his investigation. And that's going to take, you know, months, if not years. years right. and, and the problem is, is we're going to keep talking about this over and over and over again with no resolution. It's, it's unfortunately, it's like cable news. They got all these hours to fill. <laughs> they have to fill it with something as they talk about this stuff. And it, it gets, it gets kind of tiresome. In, in, in a real way, the average person, the, the pedestrian American just isn't connected to this. They're not responding. Mm -hmm. Even if they, in other words, nothing has been exposed that is tantamount to the president shooting somebody on Fifth Avenue um, in public. And, and he hasn't crossed that line yet. He's crossed all kind of lines yeah. as far as the media is concerned, as far as the, um, the investigative world and investigative communities uh, are, are concerned. But, um, you know, he has not offended his people yet. And until Donald Trump offends his people, Donald Trump is going to be fine and he can offend all the rest of us as long as he doesn't offend his people. But I don't think he, he could offend his people. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I mean, his people are 23 percent of the electorate. Right. Less than a quarter of the electorate. 
Um, and no matter what he does, they're going to stick with him for whatever reason. I mean, you know, think about all of the all of the members of Congress and the senators who's after the the uh, um, what was it the the, the tape. Mm-hmm. Um, which is the show I'm trying to, Access Hollywood tape came out. I am. Who said, I have daughters, I, no, I can't support them anymore. And they went into that booth and they pulled Trump. So nothing No, you're, you're absolutely right. And as long as Trump's numbers remain as high as they are with Republicans, and 85, they are 85%, 85% uh, these guys are not going to fold. But the fact is that we're, we're approaching the midterm elections. And that is where the danger lies for them, I think. I mean, if you start seeing some uh, um, disintegration there of those numbers, if this starts, you know, the, right now the news organizations, including my own Politico, are all following the breadcrumbs on this Russian story. Mm-hmm. There's nothing illegal that we've, anybody has found yet. Uh, but but the fact and and maybe collusion. Some people have argued. Some of the Fox News commentators have argued that the collusion is not a crime anyway. Right. Um, but the fact is, it may it may irk a lot of voters out there that Donald Trump's campaign turned to a foreign government and Russia uh, for help. And uh, and we'll see how much this uh, investigation. Uh, is is un- unveiled before the midterms. We only have 18 months. Yeah. And, and as a normal predict, you know, it's predictable in political science that the governing party loses seats every, every in the midterms, except for Bush and Clinton, both because of the country wanting to punish Republicans in '98 for impeaching Clinton rather than censoring him, and also um, you know late, later down the line um, as it came to Bill Clinton uh, um, and also George Bush support for him with not, uh, as a result of you know 9/11 attacks. So those two men gained seats uh, in the midterms, but historically going back 50 to 70 years, it's predictable. And Carla was citing that in the in the green room that about the average of about 24 uh-huh. seats are lost predictably without personalities, just generically. Mm-hmm. So then you add these other factors and it That's might right. have some other effect. That's well, right. Speaking of, of Congress people and Trump, there have been a number of stories that I've seen about Congress moving to restrict certain, uh, the maneuvering power of Trump on like certain foreign policy things, certain sanctions rules and stuff like that. Do you think there's any concerted sense of you know, hey, we're going to be supporting him publicly because we need his supporters in 2018 and 2020. But can we limit the damage? You know, I think you're seeing some of these senators speak up um, when Trump proposed a cybersecurity um, panel. With, Ex- explain uh, that. This came yeah, out of his at the, at the, This is one of the many uh, headlines that came out of the G20 summit, uh, aside from his, you know, handshake with Putin and, uh, yeah. you know, I'm honored to meet you and this two-hour conversation, which... Uh, we we never really uh, got a handle on what was said because Trump was the only world leader who did not hold a press conference at the G20, um, and, and and in fact the Russians owned the narrative on that whole meeting because Putin had a, a press conference uh, and and so did their foreign uh, minister, uh, so they were able to say yeah uh, he, he you know he he bought our line and uh, we're moving on to other issues. That's pretty much. Uh, uh, the way that came down. But the fact is that, you know, Trump right after that announced a cybersecurity panel, I think it was, an investigative unit with the Russians, unit. which was just the, the subject of such derision on Capitol Hill. Lindsey Graham uh, tweeted that he thought it was, the, it was the dumbest idea he had ever heard. Within tw- <laughs> oh, oh, he said almost. Almost. <laughs> almost. Uh, within 12 hours, that, that idea yeah. today has yeah. now been yeah. drop-kicked to the curb. Uh, Trump has said that's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, I think on foreign policy issues, the president tends to get support from the American electorate and the other 
political leaders. Right. They, they give but a lot on of domestic work. issues, most presidents avoid domestic issues unless it's something like economic policy around taxes. But in terms of favoring a group, you know, the African Americans and civil rights or LGBTQ communities, that's unusual in American politics because it tends to gen, uh, engender opposition. You're going to get and, someone and it's, mad at and you. It's polo, and our politics across the board for the past 20, 30 years, really since 64, are clearly defined by the concept of political polarization. Red state, blue state, you know, whether we're talking about the the, the water, you know, the, the sort of regional areas of the coastal areas in the Bay, in San Francisco or throughout California, should I say, or compared to the hinterlands yeah. of California, there's racial polarization, gender polarization, regional polarization, urban versus rural polarization. America is a country that is sorted out in all of these different ways. Do you think increasingly so? Because that tends to be the line that we're increasingly polarized. It, it all depends on who you ask. It all depends on who you're asking, what you're looking at. If you're asking, um, you know, certain scholars like Morris, P. Fiorino over at uh, Stanford, he would argue that ultimately it's the political elite who are the real divided class, not the people. But right. if you ask others, like uh, there's a book called The Big Sort by Bill Bishop. Bill Bishop says that the divisions are in everyday people. He said he voted at the University of Texas in Austin in 2004 uh, for, for uh, you know, for uh, Bush's opponent. And he couldn't figure out, was it Gore? Oh, no, it was Kenny Kerry. 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 That's how forgettable he is, <laughs> Kerry. And, and, and he said, Bishop said, I don't know how Bush won because nobody I know voted for him. Yeah. And that indicated the, the, vac the sort of vacuums that we're all functioning in. And so this side of the room is liberal. This side of the room is conservative. Conservative, and you only reinforce liberalism and you only enforce conservatism. So Donald Trump comes down the line and undermines all of these old traditional values. Totally, yeah. We've always been polarized around the traditional values of America. We, we just never been forced to confront it. And Trump is, is on, on some way forcing us to deal with some of these realities. And, and when you talk um, about some of the issues uh, you know, that are facing the, the Republican Party right now and Trump, uh, put aside the international issues, uh, the tax reform, health care, etc. We're going to be talking about some of that stuff. Mm -hmm. How interesting is it that Trump just came back from the G20 and he's going back to Paris this week to celebrate Bastille Day? Um, I, I, and I was asking one of my friends on Capitol Hill, what is that all about? And I, apparently the idea is like, Let's get him out of Washington, and like so he's not tweeting 24/7 and just off the front pages. So he so he's doing something else because right now this healthcare thing looks like it's going to go down in flames, uh, as well as everything else on the domestic agenda. He, from what we've seen, he's still going to tweet even over in Paris. Yeah. They still have internet. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Bastille the, Day. The, the, what is the, that? Well, that, that, that was Emmanuel Macron, right? It yeah. Invited yeah. him over. The, the, yeah. the irony is is that after the G20. You know, a lot of the world leaders had a somewhat, you know, questionable view of Donald Trump, um, and they hadn't met him. Now they've met him. <laughs> they're convinced. And they're convinced that there's something wrong here. Yeah. I mean, there was a great, and I hate to put, put it in these terms of great, but um, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, they were at the G20, and one of their political editors, his name was uh, Chris Ullman, he did a basically a monologue about Donald Trump, which was... Yeah. Vicious. If you haven't seen it, and he's a conservative. He's a conservative, and basically what he said was is that Donald Trump, you know, he he wants power because it burnishes his celebrity, and as long as you're talking about him, he's happy, and his world leaders are now trying to figure out ways to get to work around him, and he seemed like a lone. I mean, they use have video of him walking around by himself, no one talking to him, you know. I mean, having Ivanka sit in his seat because he was, he was afraid that maybe someone would take his chair. Mm. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's really sad 
on the one hand, that we're represented by somebody who has such low regard around the world. We've never had that before. I think Trump, Trump thinks that talking tough and you know, talking you know, real hard is a sign of American power and strength. Um, and I think it's unfortunate because so far he is coming across early in this short time of his presidency as one of the weakest presidents in American history where it really matters, where people who look at presidential politics really measure presidential power. Donald Trump is one of the weakest in history so far. All of this projection around um, American strength uh, in some ways shows Donald Trump's um, uh, inability to use what we called in the past soft power and the, and the influence of American ideals to reshape or to influence the world in a positive way. And so in a real way, uh, this, is, this is something that he has to, you know, that, that is happening now in his time. During the campaign, uh, a critic of his com called him a weak man's idea of a strong man. Yeah. I mean, the, the, you, if you just look at the, if you just look at the uh, use of executive orders yeah. and compare those to other presidents, he's almost, in, he, he's on pace to outperform both Bush and Obama combined in the use of these instruments because of the inability to get legislation done. An executive order says you're a weak man as president, except in certain emergency areas. Right. But yeah. generally speaking, it's saying in terms of influencing Congress's agenda, directly, I'm talking specifically about influencing Congress's agenda, that's a sign of presidential weakness. And, that it's interesting, uses. James, five years ago today, Donald Trump tweeted, why is Barack Obama using all these executive wow. orders? Wow. It's a sign of a weak president. Wow. Yeah. So, well, you know, <laughs> The irony is, is that his party controls Congress and the Senate, and he still can't get anything done. That, that to me, would be pretty darn scary. And, and the real power of the president is, in the political science literature, is the power of persuasion. Right. That's the only power the president is recognized to have in American politics, is the power to persuade 100 senators that we have a common interest and 435 other people that we have a common interest, and my agenda is to lead this discussion. But that's not. That's but, not but let's just say one, one, quickly one, one other power. I, one power he's shown the ability to control the conversation. Good. Yeah. And, and to control where the media yeah. is looking at any given moment. Nice. That is no small thing. Yeah. In the in the sense of you've got some major issues out there that are not being addressed. While we're looking at you know where, who did Jared Kushner meet with and Ivan, Ivanka sitting in his seat and other the, uh, and the tweets every every day. Yeah. Uh, so you know that that goes to I, I, media. Yeah. I, I think some of you were here at our last week to week when Dan Schnur said that uh, if you look at Donald Trump and what he said and what's in his books and what have been in books written about him, that he's okay with any press story about him because even if it's negative, he figures that at least allows me then to try to change the narrative. Whereas if they're not talking about you, that's the worst thing. Um, and I, mm -hmm. I think that kind of plays into it. I, I, I'm glad you brought up, James, his, you know, the, the issue of, of uh, power persuasion and, and that, that being their role, both really domestically and internationally. Mm -hmm. What did you think of his, so right before the G20, President uh, Trump went to Poland and he gave a speech there, talked about the West on a suicide trip. Um, I mean, we're kind of, wait, seem to be past that time when the United States president would go overseas and give inspiring, optimistic, you know, uh, right. uplifting speeches, and, and this was more, you know, doom and gloom sort of stuff. I mean, is that uh, we might have expected no, it? No, huge contrast to when you talk about like Barack Obama going to Berlin and delivering that speech uh, to yeah. millions of people yeah. who came out to see him there mm -hmm. uh, about America and where where we are in our place in the world. Uh, 
uh, that speech in Poland was viewed as the highlight of, of uh, Donald Trump's overseas speech. It was sort of a strong America speech. But once again, it, it, uh, it did kind of underscore America's pullback uh, on foreign aid issues, uh, which were cutting those funds back, uh, the up uptick in military spending, um, the, the, all those, for all those reasons. I mean, conservatives loved that speech, Republicans loved that speech, they thought that that showed uh, Trump being a strong man uh, on, the, on the international stage. But once again, it, it did speak to where is, what is America's place in the world. And on the issue of climate change, I think that was the singular issue at the G20 where we saw uh, America is, is alone. We're, we're isolated, isolated now. Yeah. From well, I, I would say Washington is isolated if we get to Jerry yeah. Brown, yeah. right? Because yeah, yeah. Yeah. Jerry Brown's trying to do something different. Well, let's, let's get to that in a little bit. A question from the audience. Do you think Donald Trump, uh, do you think President Trump would dare to fire Robert Mueller? He's the special prosecutor. Um, let, me, let, me, let me take that yeah. first. Bob? Yeah. Yes, I think he would. Yeah. I think he would do it because he has faced no consequences for anything he's done. So, you know, no consequences for firing Comey. So if and he got to Comey because Comey started getting close to some things that he didn't want him to find. So I don't I I don't I think he would do it. Would it would it be devastating for him? I think it would in the long run, but he hasn't seen he, it's like a kid that, you know, keeps getting away with stuff. Until they can't get away with it anymore, they're gonna keep doing it. I, 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 don't, I, I, think, I, can't, I think you can't answer that at this point. I think it, it would be politically uh, damaging <clears throat> to a huge degree, but then, you know, we but all he, have been wrong on so many But he, he telegraphed a little bit recently, about three weeks ago, he indicated that the relationship between Mueller and Comey was too close and that these guys are friends and that this is an illegitimate investigation because of their old friendship. And, uh, you know, Trump interpreted their friendship and made them much closer than they probably really are. And so I think that is a hint that if, if Mueller gets as close as Comey got, if there is a, you know, getting close to anything, if there's a there there, then we might see. And, and in fact, you're the, right, you know, that was one of the shockers of the G22 when, the, when he gave that press conference ahead of time or just answered a question or two. He was criticizing the media, yeah, the intelligence yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, agency, and, and about, Barack about Obama overseas. About Podesta's emails, wasn't it? That yeah, yeah talking about how Podesta's emails, right, yeah. were, were, were all anyone was talking about. Uh, but, From my point of view, too, I got to say the, the relationship with the press. Once again, that's obviously a big concern of mine. The transparency. Talk about that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, when you when you have a president going overseas, and I've got friends who are on that trip who cover that trip, they get no access to to anyone in the administration. They get no one answering their questions. This is really unusual. Uh, this is just not uh, is unheard of, really. Mm -hmm. uh, and for every foreign leader to have a press conference and answer questions and. To have that meeting with Putin in which there were no outsiders. Now, today, Sarah Huckabee was asked, was there a recording of that meeting? And she said, uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, so maybe there was a recording of that meeting, but somebody's got to tell us what happened in that meeting. It'll, tomorrow it'll, it'll we'll be on task. Tomorrow yeah. we'll get a tweet that says, you better make sure there's no tapes with my <laughs> no. room. Yeah. Yeah. Lord, I want to know if there's recording. And then he'll come out and yeah. say, there are no tapes. I was just kidding. And then... Again, with Trump, I say whenever he tweets, look at the ticker on TV. Do you Whatever's going on up here, look down yeah. there. But yeah. do you, <laughs> we, we've got a number of we've got actually a number of audience questions saying, uh, you know, the whole distraction issue. Do you think that's a, that's intentional or this is just? I think the way it's he intentional. Absolutely, he's played he's played this so well his entire career. 
as a as a business guy, as a reality TV show, as a as a wrestling uh, you know guy. I mean, uh, there's just there all of the rules are out, and I I think this is where the media has now become, I think, very sensitive to just like keeping our keeping our eyes on the prize, which is. Uh, the, the issue at hand, when it comes to that Russian investigation, all these news organizations, at least in the major ones, are very much focused on trying to uncover what they can on it to get to the bottom of it, whatever that is, right? Two um, points. But I think we're very easily distracted by, you yeah. know. Two points. All the, uh, Does anybody here really believe that Putin has, doesn't have a recording of that meeting? Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, think, Bob. think about it. It's a very think good point. Think about it. I mean, you know, the meeting in the White House. Yeah, they recorded. Very good point. Has had the very photo. Good point. Wow. So I, I believe there probably is a recording out there. Mm. Um, regarding the, the, the media, you know, don't forget in, in 2000, Two, the media really fell down on the job when it came to the WMDs and allowed us to go into war. Um, the media now is trying to prove how tough it is. And it's, it's not ABC and NBC and CBS, you know, the evening news. It's cable news that, that has to fill those hours. And they put so much stuff on every hour. You have a panel of eight people up there talking back and forth. I mean, it just, to me, as a person that's in the media, I'm like, I, I watch for a couple hours, and it's like, well, there's really nothing new here. Because every hour, it's breaking news. Something <laughs> happened 12 hours ago. Right. So I really believe the media is its own worst enemy. The media is the reason that, that gave Trump all this free publicity and allowed him to get where he was. The media is the one, are the ones that basically kept Hillary Clinton's emails at the top of the newscast for over a year. Which, mm. which highlights, I'm sorry to interrupt you, which highlights the, the hypocrisy of Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski mm. last week when they made themselves a big national story about Trump bullying and intimidating them, et cetera, when they clearly supported this man right. in the campaign, giving him millions of dollars in free airtime, and now they well, have bias and remorse. Fox, right. Right. CBS, you know, right. MSNBC, right. CNN, they all did yeah. it. I mean, Trump yeah. was, was, even though you have people out there trying to talk bad about him, you're still this, talking that, about no, it. No, this is deep. Yeah. This is something nobody's really talked about, and you're bringing this out, and that is, this is their, this is their Frankenstein. <laughs> this is, I mean, seriously, and literally, this is their Frankenstein that they created as a member of the media himself, and in terms of the free billions of dollars in buy, ad, free ad buy time, I think they call it, uh, that he got on his way to the White House. CBS's head exec bragged about it, right? Yep. Um, and so I think, to me, the media, that's all crying about Donald Trump and Clowning, uh, what's his name? Ari, uh, not, not Ari Spicer, the other Spicer, uh, Spice, yeah. Spicy, as yeah. they call him, um, and uh, and uh, you know Sarah Huckabee uh, Sanders. This is sort of buyer's remorse. They created way before he ran. The media and the, and the, the New York media, where I'm from, yeah, clearly supported and and buttressed Donald Trump's status as a New York icon, along with Giuliani and a few others. Yeah. And so now that they've created this monster, literally, we're all old enough to remember Frankenstein. This is their monster. They don't know what to do with it. Now they're asking you to help them get their monster back in the, in the, in the, in the well, dungeon. And what, Hell well, no, he's the president of the United States. He's not going back in the dungeon. Well, what did you think about it then when, he, when the president tweeted that uh, video showing him, you know, yeah. supposedly beating yeah. up a CNN? <laughs> yeah, I, well, I, I, I this, you know, I'm sorry, Bob, I didn't mean to interrupt. I mean, the, this <laughs> fake news thing is, you, we're both in this business, right? <laughs> This is the most biggest frustration to me because anytime you write something that is a serious piece of that, but it's, it may be slightly critical of Trump, these people are tweeting it fake news. They just, uh, there's just a, or a, a sort of an organizational effort out there. It's, right? it's for, for, for the conservative media, for the, the Breitbart's and the Fox News, 
anything, any facts the mainstream media present mm. is propaganda. And to them, the propaganda, which has been debunked numerous times already, to them it's fact, even if it's been debunked, because the fact checkers, you know, are, are biased. I mean, you start going down that road mm -hmm. of people that will tell you that, well, that's just fake news. You know, you know, if you're on, I'm on, I'm on Facebook, and I've got some some friends on friends on Facebook, and I'm constantly, you know, posting, you know, corrections for stuff that they put, like this Islamist woman in New Mexico that was arrested near the pipeline with pipeline drawings, and the implication was she was trying to blow it up. Well. When you start doing some research, I called the sheriff's office down there. I'm a reporter. They said that never happened. <laughs> it never happened. But yet you see it all over the media. So their people are getting this kind of information and they believe it's true because starting with the president, he's told them that anything that these guys tell you is false. And I'm the only one you can believe. I'm the only one who can fix it. And that's where we are in a, as a and, country and when, right And now. when Trump sits down with Putin at, uh, at the G20, and as Maggie Haberman of the New York Times reported, Putin says to him, looking out at the media, are these the people that are insulting you? Disrespecting and, you or whatever. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, they, but, it's so, a mind blower. Did you, did you all see that uh, news story about, is it Brian Karam? Karam? The, the uh, uh, reporter in the White House press. Oh, Brian Karam. Oh, Karam. Yeah. I think uh, yeah, and he basically just went after Sanders Huckabee, or Huckabee Sanders, excuse me, saying, you know, you keep accusing us of all this kind of stuff. You have no consequences. We do, because we have everyone who will, you know, turn the channel, stop reading us, write in and tell, demand our bosses fire us or something. That's right. Um, no, there's no question in my mind, Bob knows this, both of us are one tweet away from being fired at any time for something for printing something false. Now, and I specifically want to ask you, Carla, because you, you know people in, in the, the White House press corps. And what I heard a number of folks say watching that exchange uh, in, the, in the White House press room, they were surprised at how quiet the rest of the press was. I mean, do any of your friends or contacts there, yeah. were they like saying afterward they bought this guy a beer or, gee, they wish he had shut up? Yeah, no, no. I, 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 to me, this was something that needed to be said because I'm, I watch these press briefings all the time just because it's much must-watch TV for me now. <laughs> but I, I, I just cannot believe watching a press secretary get up almost every day and lecture these guys like, well, you know, you're fake news and here you go again. Uh, I, I, you know, you've seen a certain amount of that, but not to the point. At, at some point, I've been saying to my colleagues, somebody's just got to say to her, look, you're being paid to answer our questions. Our job is to ask the questions, period, end paragraph. That's it, you know, and, and nobody, finally somebody said it to her. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and she got nailed again today in the press briefing, uh, the fact that you, you've been telling us uh, basically lies on this issue of the Russia issue. You keep saying there's, there were no meetings, that we're making this up. And what does this prove today? And you know, the answer is just not there. There is, there, she's not being held accountable, I don't think. Real quickly, I wonder, yes. if, with your backgrounds, if either of the, uh, the case of the way in which the media um, sort of is organized around, I think maybe 10, 20 years ago, they claimed that the, um, that the entertainment and the newsrooms kind of converged. And so again, this is another way that Donald Trump has been, the seeds for Donald Trump were in place decades before he becomes a national figure on, in this, the way we know him now, because we had largely set that foundation um, in terms of our media organizing. I think, again, you all are the professionals, yeah. where our media became much more about entertainment and less more about the coverage of, of hard press. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version of this. So I worked for CBS radio. We're owned by CBS. 
Uh, since I've been with the company, which is since 1981, we've been owned by CBS, Westinghouse, Infinity Radio, Viacom, okay? Uh, part of Viacom is Paramount Pictures. Viacom was the parent company. I went to corporate HR in 2005. In 2006, the company split. So CBS and Viacom became separate companies. Yes, look who owns ABC. Disney, that is an entertainment company. Look who owns uh, NBC, Comcast. It's, an it's a cable entertainment company. So yes, we now are owned by entertainment companies. And the, the problem with the entertainment companies is they don't understand that news is not a profit center. Mm. News is not a place that you go to make money. It's a place that you, you go to hold the powerful accountable. News provides information uh, to, the, the, to have an informed electorate. But now that we're owned by entertainment companies, the bean counters are the ones who make the decisions. So it is really about the bottom line. It never was that way before. Edward R. Murrow will be turning over in his grave right now because of where, where, the way things are right now. And I'll give you one example of, of what this happened. Back in, the, I think it was in 2002, 2003, with the last round of consolidations, the FCC was supposed to be, was having a vote on whether to further consolidate the media, okay? Michael Powell had a, a, a public hearing in San Francisco on this issue. I, I was the morning reporter that day on a Saturday, and I, we did not cover that hearing because nobody told us, they say nobody told us not to cover it, but I'm CBS, I want to be able to c consolidate further, so why would we cover this hearing to inform the electorate of what's really going on? Mm -hmm. I, I just want to say one other aspect of this is the White House itself has changed the makeup of the press corps in that room. Yeah. Uh, you know, just I think in this last month, Hearst Corporation, one of the biggest, which owns the San Francisco Chronicle, they lost their seat. The San Francisco Chronicle really? lost its seat in, in the press room. Who's getting that seat? It's these organizations like Breitbart. Vice News oh, just did a, a story. You know, look, I grew up in the era of Helen Thomas. She was my hero uh, in the press room, right? I mean, uh, Vice News just did a story on a 28-year-old former pinup boy for a conservative organization who has the MAGA, you know, uh, bumper sticker all over his wall and he's been given a seat in the press room. That never would have happened before. Somebody who's never covered news before. You really had to prove yourself before to get a seat in that press room, and that's just not the case anymore. Well, let's move along to uh, our next topic, which is Jerry Brown, who... Uh, who's that? <laughs> California Governor Jerry Brown has been establishing himself as somewhat of a leader of state-level opposition to the Trump administration on climate matters. Uh, he traveled to China. Uh, to talk with its leaders about climate change. And of course, he's, he's challenged Trump during the recent G20 summit. Um, and he's called for a global summit on environmental action to take place here in San Francisco, I believe in September. Yeah. Um, and he, he sent a video message to some activists, thousands of activists actually, who were gathered in Hamburg, Germany. And he, he said that President Trump, quote, doesn't speak for the rest of America, unquote. Um, maybe start with you, Bob. I mean, is what do you make of Governor Brown's actions? Is it good politics, good policy, or what? Man, if he was 20 years younger, it would be great policy <laughs> because he'd be running for president. Because <laughs> I think he always wanted to. Yeah. But I think I do believe that he, he does think that there is a great threat to California and, by extension, the other states by this administration and. Some people aren't convinced that climate change is real. 
um, I've been to Africa. I've, I've been to places where this, the, the sea is now, you know, 100 feet further on than it used to be, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. So I've seen the effects of it, but other people don't believe it. And now we have an administration that basically has, has gutted the EPA and has gutted, you know, climate science, has removed references from the, from the website. So I, I, I applaud what he's doing, not sure if it's going to be as effective as he wants it to be. But we have seen, we have well, seen some uh, sort of glimmers of the fact that maybe Jerry Brown is having an effect. Um, you know, uh, the, the Clean Air Act, which was passed five years ago, uh, gave California this waiver to uh, establish its own ta tailpipe emission right, standards. Yeah. And uh, of course, what does that mean? That California is, a, is, a, is the 800-pound gorilla in the car market, uh, along with the 12 other states that now have followed California's tailpipe emissions. We're a huge consumer market. And so the auto manufacturers are not going to have all these different standards. If California's got one standard and it's a strict one, they're going to go with that one. And that's what's been happening. So now more than 40% of the population is following in, in, people in those states are following California's emission standards. This week, I and mean, Carolyn Lockett wrote about this, um, the EPA is kind of folding, saying, you know, originally Scott Pruitt said, you know, we're going to make you guys, uh, you know, go to our standards. We, this is not going to go with California doing its own thing. Now they're kind of saying, uh, well, you know, it, it, essentially, uh, I guess they are because it, there's not enough time for them to just undo all the standards here. The, meanwhile, the cars are rolling off the line. Right. Uh, the auto manufacturers are not going to go for that. So it looks like California maybe has won that battle or will win that battle. And Jerry Brown, um, I thought by doing this message to, to an audience in Hamburg on the day that G20 be, uh, you know, opened, he was basically like, that was a throwdown. Yeah. And he's been doing a throwdown to Donald Trump uh, from the beginning. He keeps saying he thinks Donald Trump is going to come around. And, and he may be right on that uh, in the sense of politically, how long can you hold out on this one when it does, when the polls show? People understand it when they see these wildfires in California, these extreme temperatures. They're watching, you know, the ice flows melt and all this other. They, they get it. And you're seeing more and more stories about how this is a, this is the one policy that Trump is affecting that that could have lasting impact. Because you can undo, the next president could undo whatever he does, but on this one, this, this is gonna affect generations to come. And I think people kind of get that. Yeah, and this is why Jerry Brown thinks that, you know, what Trump has actually done is spawn a uh, pro-environment movement uh, that he d did not anticipate. Uh, and I thought it was, it was really important to, to sort of recognize that Jerry Brown, as you say, has been in, in leadership in these fronts you know, for 40, 50 years, we, yeah. they called him Governor Moonbeam yeah. 40 years ago. Nobody took him serious here in California, and yet the policies he was advocating were visionary in compared to what we're, where we are today. Um, and so, um, as you say, California on emissions, you know, auto emissions going back 30, 40 years has been leading. Um, Jerry Brown said that if Donald Trump was elected, he would build a wall around California to protect the people. <laughs> That's right, he did. You remember that? Um, and I think that was, that was something. And it's also important, I think, in terms of political, uh, understanding the political moment we're living in, that most of us are old enough to remember uh, the states' rights demands of the Confederate, the neo-Confederate, the ex-Confederate South, the states' rights in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, from, from Strom Thurmond in 48 to Wallace all the way through. Um, I think with both these issues the, um, around uh, immigration yeah. um, uh, and uh, the um, climate issues, that you're going to see more, more governors who are liberal arguing for states' rights 
in the same tradition that Governor Wallace did when he stood in the schoolhouse door stubbornly against the Kennedy demand, or the LBJ demand, or the Kennedy demand, excuse mm -hmm. me, to, to integrate the University of Alabama. You know, he said segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. That's a famous governor yeah. challenging federal power, saying, hell no, you can't do it here in Alabama. And I'm saying Jerry Brown is acting as in that same tradition of no, states' rights, we have our own sovereignty against your national power, and we'll test it if we have to. <laughs> you, you, one of you mentioned the Environmental Protection Agency taking down uh, data that it has tracking um, climate change, and they, so they took it off their website. Um, soon after that happened, cities began posting it. Chicago was the first one to do it. Right. They were posting this data to their websites. Since then, uh, almost a dozen other cities have uh, followed suit, including San Francisco, uh, Houston, and Red State, Texas. Um, James, is this yeah. an effective way yeah. of also I, I countering? Think, I think this is what liberals and progressives have to do, mm -hmm. um, and moderates as well, is local politics is the politics, I think, that will be responsive to the emergence of Donald Trump and his administration is if people want to feel a sense of empowerment, they have to do it at the local level where you can change the world more immediately as opposed to these, you know, abstract uh, philosophical ideas such as end racism. Well, what is that? Yeah. You know, yeah, but I you can be concrete that. and go and tutor some young people to improve their lives to get out of these traps that they tend to be in, in some, you know, sometimes. And so that to me is much more concrete than the generic claims. And I think that's what the, the, the liberal and progressives have to do going forward is that they have got to figure out ways of using some of the old conservative arguments that the conservatives used to sustain themselves as a minority for 60 years until they got power in order to offset this turn and this trend. And real quickly, uh, and maybe we'll go to a different question, but I think that the election of Donald Trump is a historical election in the same way in which the 1876 election, the Hayes-Tilden uh, election, reversed American history radically in terms of reconstruction. And I see Donald Trump's election as the equivalent of the election of Hendrik um, Verwoerd. Uh, if anybody knows him in South Africa, he was the man that set up the policy of apartheid in South Africa after a minority party in 1948 came to power, and in 54 he comes to power and he sets up apartheid. And most of us don't take seriously that Donald Trump represents the reversal of American history. Hmm. But we, whatever, wherever we were going, history has been reversed, and I'm not saying that's good or bad, I'm just acknowledging it as a, a matter of of, of process that has happened, that we are in a historical reversal in terms of issues that liberals and the New Deal state, the liberal state, the welfare state had advocated going back 70 years. Yeah. I'm saying to you finally that this is as much about FDR and the ghost of FDR as it is about the real politics that are brought out in the everyday debates we're having today. The welfare state, the very assumption of um, the, 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 the mobilization of the welfare state, the compromise between capital and labor seems to have been lost in the new arrangement of neoliberal turns toward um, austerity, et cetera. And I think, uh, James, when you make a point about how uh, liberals are going to use some of the same um, uh, arguments, ammunition that conservatives use, that is states' rights, we're seeing this also on this voting rights uh, issue yeah. uh, with, with the Trump Commission looking for uh, all the states to give up information on you know, military record, uh, social security number, et cetera, and uh, California Secretary of State Alex Padilla saying, oh, no, you don't. Uh, we're, not, we're not giving that up. And that is the exact argument a lot of conservatives have used. We're not giving information to the government, the big government. Yeah. We're just not doing it. And, and now I think 40 44 plus, states, 44 44, states yeah. uh, have now joined with that. Uh, and, and I think that that's a, you're well, going to be seeing lawsuits. Yeah. You know. Well, and just, just today there was uh, news from that commission. This is a commission headed by Vice President Mike Pence and uh, 
Kansas uh, Secretary Chris, of State. Chris Kobach. Yeah, Chris Kobach. Um, and it's, Who, by the way, won't, won't, won't give up their information either. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. The only, <laughs> the only, the only state that's complied yeah. has been Arkansas. Um, and it's the most strict of all the states, they say, because of him, in terms of these uh, yeah, requirements. Yeah. Well, and so, yeah, this is a commission looking into what, the, what it calls election integrity. No, it's not investigating Russia's interference in the election. No, it's not investigating suppression of voting. It's looking into what some on the right believe is, is you know, widespread voter fraud, which no one's been able to. Uh, exactly right. I, I just talked to uh, Secretary of State Padilla on this uh, in the last couple of days uh, and, and said, you know, uh, President Trump has tweeted, what are you hiding? And he said, we're not, we're not hiding anything. But this is the exact line that conservatives have always said, uh, big government doesn't deserve, uh, you know, access to our yeah. private information. And he said, what better way? He called it a hacker's dream come true. <laughs> They're talking about taking all this private information, military records, criminal records, and so forth, and putting it on a website, an unprotected website. Uh, the idea is insane. Uh, well, and really, they should just email it to Russia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Get it. <laughs> when you access the website, I saw this online, when you access the website, it sends you a message that this is you know, vulnerable to be really? hacked. Yeah. It's, it's really scary. But, but of course, they, the idea is, as Padilla said, uh, this isn't really about voter fraud. Right. This is about voter suppression, that the idea is uh, the, the Republicans are going to insist that we have to have tighter uh, uh, rules and, and we're going to restrict people's voting rights. Sure. And that's where- More than yeah. they've already done. Yeah, more yeah. than they've already done in some states. Speaking of Republicans and the president, um, how many of you here in the audience, raise your hand, if you can name one of the Republicans running for governor of the state? <laughs> there you go. Oh, okay. We actually have a couple. No, actually, he said no. He, he pulled out. Uh, yes, John you're actually Cox, right. Yes. Okay, this does not count. Okay, our audience is too smart. No. <laughs> exactly right. Um, well, the reason I brought it up is, Carla, you've just reported a story on, on this and about their, in fact, Cox and Allen and... and uh, uh, David Hadley, yeah. David Hadley, their way of dealing with Trump. Why, why don't you explain well, what the, you This thought. is the issue for Republicans in California. And this is not just, uh, you know, whoever's running for governor. Uh, there's now three major candidates running for governor, and only one of them, Travis Allen, will even admit voting for Donald Trump. Uh, the, the problem is they've got this thing called the Trump effect, which is if you're a Republican trying to run in this state, do you, do you embrace him or do you put him at arm's length? Do you want him to come and campaign for you or what? Um, and uh, Tra Travis Allen, the assemblyman who just got into the race, I talked to him and he said, uh, you know, yes, I voted for him. Uh, look, at there, he said there's 4.4 million Republicans in the state who did vote for Donald Trump. And if you want these tried and true Republicans uh, to, to make, help you make it through the primary, you've got to at least say you voted for a Republican candidate. The problem is, what are Donald Trump's approval ratings here in California? 27%. He got only 31% of the vote here. We've got this top two primary system in California, which already, you know, gives the, the odds of them making it through. This is like Mission Impossible for Republicans. Well, if I could throw out some numbers. So 4.4 million, say he gets something like 4.4 million. Uh, in the last uh, primary for governor, the 2014 primary, incumbent Jerry Brown got about 2.4 million votes in the primary. The next largest vote getter, Neil Kashkari, got 840,000. So during the primary, it could be a game changer. Um, in, in the general election, of course, then Governor Brown got just under 4.4 million. And, uh, yeah. But again, that was also an election with low turnout because everyone kind of knew that Jerry mm -hmm. Brown was going to Right. So, we, I mean, we've got a situation where the Republicans are essentially banking on this, that there's uh, people are upset about the gas tax. 
uh, that Brown and the Democrats just, just put through, uh, that maybe people aren't as supportive of sanctuary cities as a lot of uh, 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 Democrats believe, and some of the polls suggest maybe they're not. Uh, they think that the Democrats have overreached in Sacramento, uh, and they're hoping that maybe the economy is going to improve with President Trump, that they'll get through some kind of tax uh, uh, reform plan. Uh, that doesn't look likely. Uh, but, you know, then if, if the Democrats pick somebody like a Gavin Newsom, he'll be too liberal for most uh, Californians. It, there's a lot of ifs there. Uh, and Travis Allen told me basically, uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, uh, basically a, a, a shark-confested waters for them. The fact is, money's a big thing, too, because yeah. Gavin Newsom has already raised $10 million. And uh, John Cox, who's the wealthy businessman, he's going to put in $3 million of his own. Um, he's an interesting figure on his own. He ran for Senate in Illinois against a guy named Barack <laughs> Obama. You know how that turned out. <coughs> and here he is in California running um, for something else. We'll see what happens to the Republicans uh, here in California. It's also on the House races. This is their problem. Does Daryl Issa want... Um, Donald Trump to come and campaign for him? I don't think so. And mm -hmm. he's, you know, he barely squeaked through last time around with 1,600 votes. So this Trump effect is a big issue for them in California. Bob, you were shaking your head. Well, <laughs> uh, when you mentioned ISA, I, I remember seeing a Facebook post from Mr. Sulu who's going to run against him. <laughs> I, I don't think he was serious. But I think sure the Republicans in, in California, especially those in the House, they're going to face a tough task to get reelected because if Donald Trump did nothing else, California Democrats realize that, okay, some of these guys are in, in so-called safe seats, but they have lots of Democrats in the district and they know they have to turn out if they want to try to, if, they, if, if the Democrats want to take back the House, which is what they keep saying that they want to do and, and they say it's really doable, then you have to win some of these winnable races in a blue state like California. It's going to be interesting, too, because this is, this is another interesting aspect about this year. Usually you can't find anybody to run against an incumbent in the House. It's, or, you know, if they are, they're kind of a minor candidate. Um, it's just very hard. You've got to raise a lot of money. You know, this almost impossible task to unseat somebody. This year, among the, there's like seven to nine Republicans viewed as very vulnerable. In almost all these races, there's at least four or five, maybe six, seven people running against Daryl Issa, against Mimi Walters, some of these vulnerable Republicans. There's a crowd of Democrats uh, running against them. And they're veterans. A lot of them are veterans. A lot of them are veterans. I, it's going to be real interesting. And, mm -hmm. of course, uh, none of these Republicans or very few of them are holding town hall meetings. Yeah. Uh, because of this health care bill. Uh, Which I want to get into next. Yes. But James, do you have any last words on uh, the Republican prospects? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. I don't think they're good in California. Okay. Uh, but I think there'll be a pendular swing to discipline the Democrats for overreaches that are inevitable and the corruption that comes with, all, with power. And I think this is kind of a microcosm inverted of what's happening with the Trump at the national level, with the Republicans at the national level. Yeah, I've, I've kind of sometimes toyed with the question of who's worse off, Republicans in California or Democrats in, in Washington America. right now? <laughs> <laughs> well, l let's move on to health care. So uh, people around the country have been watching the fate of the GOP health care reform bill. Um, it, of course, passed the U.S. House of Representatives to much celebration on the right and for other reasons on the left because they knew they could run on it. Right. Um, but the effort has been bottled up in the Senate. The uh, Senate bill that was uh, written 
was DOA. I mean, it was written in secret. Even the senators who were supposed to be tasked with writing it officially hadn't, didn't know what was going on on it. Um, Carla, what's the latest on this? What's the prospect? Well, of? I mean, this has been interesting, and we're going to see tomorrow uh, big meetings on the Hill tomorrow. You know, th this uh, this looks DOA. This this bill looks DOA. The fact is that that Republicans uh, heard from their uh, people when they during the Fourth of July break. The, the bill has been changed. There's been more money added for opioid treatment. That's something that a lot of the conservatives in some of those Rust Belt areas wanted. Uh, they, they are going to add the ability to use uh, health, health savings accounts to pay for premiums. They're, they're trying to tinker with it a little bit, a stabilization fund to keep the market and so forth. Uh, you know, Senator Feinstein was here on Friday doing a big uh, press event in San Francisco, and, and what she talked about really echoed all the concerns you're seeing at these town hall meetings. The fact is when they're cutting uh, Medicaid, which in California, as you know, is Medi-Cal, um, that's a $30 billion a year cut they're talking about for California alone. Some of the numbers she pointed out, one in three state residents here are on Medi-Cal, uh, 50 to 70% of all the kids in children's hospitals are on Medi-Cal. Uh, one of every two births, 60% of all nursing homes. You got numbers like that going on. Uh, people, uh, senators in other states, like uh, are, are saying, uh, no, we're, we're not going for this. And I and they were asking today at the pre press briefing, well, is the president going to get out there and actually, you know, campaign on this or talk to people? No, I mean he's going to France to celebrate Bastille Day. I mean, you know, so uh, <laughs> I don't know well, what. You kind what of understand why he wouldn't. Um, yeah. You know, he wants to win. He's going to win so much that they're going to get tired of winning. And getting out there and, and lobbying for a bill that you finally realize doesn't have much chance of passing, that ain't winning. <coughs> That's losing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a pretty dire sort of prediction when he got out there and tweeted, I guess, yesterday, I, I can't believe they wouldn't do this. Yeah. But the fact is that, um, yeah, believe it, because uh, uh, I've heard from people. You know, I've been to these town hall meetings up and down the state, and I have to say, you know, I've talked to people. Uh, some people on the Republican side say this is, this is astroturf. These are manufactured people, uh, you know, groups coming out. No, no, they are not. I, I, I have talked to numerous people at these meetings who say this is the first time I've ever come to a town hall meeting, and i got to tell you, I am scared stiff that I'm going to lose my health care. Uh, and and th these are uh, both sides of the aisle. I think that this, uh, you know, Feinstein has been really relentless on this, saying to people, tweeting and everything else, get out there, call people. Uh, Kamala Harris, too, has done the same. And, and uh, you know, we know how it's going to come down for our senators here in California, but in some of these key states, you're seeing Republicans cave on it, and it looks like at least 10 of them uh, maybe are it's not going to go for this. That's, that's the numbers nine, we're yeah. looking at. So someone in the audience asks, uh, where, sh is this an opportunity for the Democrats to put forward a bill? You know, is, is this an opportunity for them? I read a good analysis that suggested this may be, this is a long shot, you know, like no snowball's chance in hell, et cetera, damn thing, but maybe this will be the moment where Democrats and Republicans, wouldn't it be great, actually came together and sat down and said, just, just as during the Reagan years on, on uh, Medicaid, uh, both sides came together and basically saved it and decided, you know, they, they both of them took a lot of medicine, uh, but came up with a compromise that saved the funding on it. That whether the whether they could do that this time around, it I think it's a different political 
atmosphere in Washington, yeah. you're not going to have that kind of collegiality anymore. But I would, I would add that there has been uh, some signs of, 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 of bipartisanship around health care and specifically around veterans health care and addressing the 21 million veterans in the United States and their issues. Um, there appears to be both Republicans and Democrats working together. So maybe this is something that these individuals, once they see that you can produce legislation, yeah. will get a sense to, and, and not be punished for it by your party or your voters that this might be a way forward. Maybe Americans want more bipartisanship and less polarization. And maybe but, this is a way to move in that direction. There's no question people want more, more uh, cooperation, mm -hmm. less polarization. The veterans issue, that's a slam dunk. That's low-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. But I think the issue is the Democrats will tell you that, yes, we have offered a number of solutions to fixing the Obamacare, to fix the ACA. Um, and everybody, you know, the Republicans keep saying, well, it's dead, it's dead. No, it's not dead. They're killing it. You know, when you take funding away from the, from the risk pool uh, back in 2015 so that the insurance companies did not get reimbursed, that's why they walked away from a lot of these states, because they, weren't, they couldn't make any money in the states. And so by you saying that it's dying, it, we, we, keep, we, we, we forget to ask the question, well, what role did you play in it getting to where it is right now? So the Democrats, on the one hand, say they have offered solutions, but they're not, they don't want to be so quick to come in there and help save the Republicans because they think it's going to be something that will help them in 2018. The Republican side, mm -hmm. they were like, well, you know, if we talk to the Democrats, as the president has said we may have to do, then, you know, we're, we've campaigned on this for seven years. We're going to repeal and replace Obamacare with something better. We ain't got nothing better. So now what are we going to do? If for, for us to admit that we can't do this, it's a failure. And I think they're really afraid to admit that they, that they have failed. So what they'll do, if this bill does not pass in the Senate, the, the first thing you'll see is a tweet from Trump basically saying that the Democrats, you know, killed it. The Democrats wouldn't go along. Yeah, and, and you can get a sense of that now, that they're already suggesting both the president and Mitch sure. McConnell, uh, since the Republicans can't get their stuff together, yeah. we'll bring the Democrats on yeah, so Mitch we can McConnell blame them for our failure. Mm -hmm. Just, they didn't finish the sentence, but that, that's the rest of it. <laughs> yeah, 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 there's a So, I mean, I think it's really, sh I look at this and I, I, you know, the ACA was not perfect, but I, why is it that they were so against the ACA? Because the Republicans did help craft it. It was Republican. It's a it Republican Romney bill. Yeah, Romney, Romney care yeah. from the Heritage But you Foundation. put it in Obama's name and it's hated. You put it in Trump's name, it's love. Right. So there's something right. much deeper. Right. We talked and this about is the elephant in the room that nobody wants to right. talk about in well, America. I, I think it's pretty obvious. We talked about it in the green room. <laughs> right. But the way in which these cultural polarization issues are informing everything else, the tax issues, immigration issues, all of this is about the, the transition that this country is in in terms of the demographic transformation of this country. And we don't have the spiritual or wisdom leadership, if, that's such a, if there's such a concept, the wisdom leadership available to help us all navigate this transformation of our country and our society. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for attending. Thanks for our great panel, Carla Marinucci, Bob Butler, and Dr. James Taylor. Have a wonderful week, everybody. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Week to Week from the Commonwealth Club, airing on the Michelle Miao Show on the Progressive Voices Network. I'm John Zipperer, and you can also hear me Tuesdays when I co-host Michelle Miao's program with her. Find out more about the club at commonwealthclub.org. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. 
So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices.